technology issues. So yes, there's the disclosure notes. <laughs> um, I was actually uh, thinking this title, I was going to use the title from Jimmy Buffett of trying to reason with the hurricane season, because I uh, think it actually is very reflective of the world we live in today. It's like one hurricane after the other hitting us. But um, sorry, sorry for the passing of somebody I saw over 20 times in concert. So uh, mm. starting with got my Jimmy Buffett thing in, let's talk about the world. Um, we are in a uh, crazy mixed up place. And as Adam was saying uh, earlier, when we started the year, the worries were around the debt ceiling and the war and things like that. And we start to drift into these new new and different problems all the time. And uh, we've just been careening from one disaster to the next. And um, but there, we spent a lot of time uh, last week talking about two big events, the Jackson Hole meeting and then also the BRICS summit. And I think those two meetings are going to be with us for some time as to the implications from there. Um, obviously, we're in a different place in the world uh, than we've been at any point in time. I want to talk about some of those uh, structural shifts and what we think it means. And um, these are some of the ones we've listed here, but definitely the world is going through a a pretty crazy change. And I thought it'd be helpful to step back to 08 and look at the five-year ahead growth forecast. And as you can see on the upper left-hand side in the blue, um, in April of 08, we had just had the announcement from Ben Bernanke that we were going to introduce QE. And we were looking globally at uh, a growth rate that was under 4%. Um, and uh, was projected five years out, though, to go back up to just under five. And as you can see, the successive um, forecast in the times they were published, you get to where we are today, and we're in a very different world of a much slower growth environment. And just to put it in perspective, if you go back to 08, the U.S. was about $14.8 billion in, in GDP. The euro area was around 14.6. And China was 4.4 trillion. So give you a sense of where the countries were in GDP then. Today, we're about 26. China's about 18. And the euro area is just under 16 trillion. So they've gone from just around 14.6 trillion to 16. And these are in dollars. So the euros come down a lot. But if you did it in purchasing power parity, it would still be um, a not much growth coming out of Europe. And I think that one number really said to me how different the world is today than it was even uh, 15 years ago. So keep in mind, keep those numbers in mind. We have a what was uh, an equal part of the uh, global economy to the US uh, now at a fraction of it and for falling further behind China and other areas. So one one element of how the world's changed. <laughs> the other element is we had inflation rear its ugly head. And while it's still coming down, one of the big messages from Jackson Hole was the fight's not done, whether that was from uh, Chair Powell or uh, Christine Lagarde. Uh, you're saying that that's uh, going to continue. And we have a real issue with uh, inflation that could be creeping back up again uh, as we have the wage issues coming in. And also <clears throat> you're starting to see some energy prices uh start to rise again. When you get into that, uh, further complicating things for policymakers is the fact that labor, uh, labor, to market, labor markets are going through some pretty incredible shifts from the pandemic forward. Uh, and then you add to that the demographic 
issues we're seeing. You're seeing population rates start to rise with uh, unemployment at record lows. What are the policymakers fighting? Are they fighting to get inflation, unemployment up to bring inflation down? Are they fighting to get more people back to work, obviously, but uh, how do they get this, this done and how do they move through? And how do we deal with uh, this in, uh, in a way that uh, can unstick the markets and not create more inflation? At the same time, the U.S. and other governments are on an unsustainable path with their debt levels, and this has become a bigger issue. Uh, and it's starting to come back to <clears throat> play into the markets where you now have Germany looking at austerity again, China looking at managed stimulus, but not the type of stimulus they've done in 08, where they drove the global economy forward, but very targeted stimulus to deal with their property issues. <clears throat> and then you have the U.S. trying to figure out how do we how do we manage our debt problems, our deficits and other areas. You have those issues going on at the same time. You have this massive power shift being attempted um, to shift power from the east, from the west to the east, with China really at the forefront of that, but other nations in the BRIC side looking for a bigger seat at the table. And how do we think about this and what does this mean? It's it's more global fragmentation, but it's also you're looking at a very fragile global ecosystem. Uh, glo fragile global relationships and fragile domestic political relationships that are further compounding the challenges that governments have. When you look at this shift and you go back to the numbers that I was talking about in 08, you would see that these BRIC nations were a fraction of the growth that they are today. So you get a sense of how much the world has changed uh, overall. It's a big shift that's going on there. And when you're moving it to the greater areas of population, that it brings with it a lot of opportunity, but also a lot of problems as we're starting to see uh, percolate. And we're hitting these problems at a time that the central banks are not really in a great spot to deal with them. So let me just put some of these numbers in perspective for you. Uh, in 08, the combined uh, balance sheet assets of the Fed, the uh, ECB, uh, all, all the euro area banks, and the Bank of Japan were $3.2 trillion. In 2020, before the uh, the pandemic hit, we were looking at $15 trillion, so a massive increase. And then fast forward to today, we're looking at $25 trillion, so a $10 trillion increase in a two-year period, a three-year period, and it's starting to come down. So it was even a higher increase uh, that we're looking at at that point. But this is really a big challenge because they don't have the, bam the firepower to continue to print money or to uh, bring rates down without spurring more inflation. So real challenge for the central banks. If they do have another downturn, they will wor not worry about inflation likely and throw that aside and worry about the downturn. But this is really an interesting dynamic that we're looking at. And then you add to it, we have the demographic cliff, which if you look at this chart, it says back that the annual growth rate of population peaked in 1963, not recently, but in 1963, so you know, 60 years ago, and has been declining ever since. We have births going up uh, around the world, not uh, population growth around the world, in large part because we're living so much longer, um, but we and we're having better health, health outcomes. But we have a big problem that tech has got to be part of the answer for, because we're going to need massive productivity increases to deal with this uh, challenge as we look at it going forward. 
And further complicating things for the for governments is that they've now are in a big deficit position for a lot of them. And this just gives you a sense of the deficit growth year over year for the U.S. And this is the first 10 months of the budget in 22 versus 23. And you know that this is growing for other governments around the world. And it's leading to Germany looking to bring back some of the austerity issues that they've talked about in the past. And that creates bigger divide inside the euro area uh, as you're looking at uh, how they're dealing with the different problems that exist inside the countries in the eurozone. And then you have other big changes that are going on that are more subtle. And this is within the G20, uh, within the BRIC nations alone. And there's a big desire to change the dynamics of the global power play at play away from the U.S. to more balance. And it's perfectly understandable that the BRIC nations want a bigger seat at the table because of their population size and because of their actual contribution to global growth right now. But one of the changes that's creating some problems is how do they do it in a way that works for them and for the other members inside the BRIC plus group? And what I want to point out with this chart is a really interesting dynamic where you see in the dark blue, China was dominating their share of world GDP for the BRIC nations by a, by a wide margin. And then you see over the, from 2010, you start to see the rise of India and then a little bit of a setback the last couple of years and from 16 to 19. And then all of a sudden you start to see a steady grind up of uh, India to China in terms of their contribution and a steady grind down for China projected over the next five years. And I think this is a really result of the policy decisions that were made by both nations and the real dynamics at play are the policy decisions made by all nations to deal with the pandemic and how they were going to work with the lockdowns and coming out of it, and how they were going to subsidize their banks going back to the financial crisis. And so it's the policy decisions over the last 15 years that have led us to where we are today. And I would say in India, some of the decisions made to deal with the fragmentation that existed within India moving to biometrics, dealing with corruption, really have shifted the tables. So now you're at a point where um, we're starting to see a real notice that China is in a decline. Their likelihood of passing the U.S. as early as they thought, which was 2030, is going out the window pretty rapidly. And it looks like they're going, they may even be passed by India if things go along the same path. Now, I'm not counting out China, and I'm not saying that their game is done. I think there are uh, a fascinating nation with massive capabilities and resources and talent that will come through this, but they're in a very difficult period and we're seeing the resets and you can get a sense if you're a government leader from these slides of where's your seat at the table? How do you build on your nation? How do you grow your nation against very difficult fiscal and monetary challenges at a time you have a demographic cliff and AI is, uh, and other technologies are creating uh, an ability for people to leapfrog and disrupt uh, incumbent powers. And we're doing this at the same time. You're seeing massive changes in the global terms of trade. So things to consider as we finish the year is this, uh, you have to think about China's slowdown, which is very complicated. It's positive in some senses because the foundation for it was not one that was able to be maintained of just... Uh, massive industrialization without bringing a consumer along with that, um, an over-reliance of property um, 
but they are an important player in the global economy, which is part of the negative. But one of the positives of their slowdown is they are importing deflation uh, around the world, and that is going to be very helpful to ease some of the pressures that central banks are under. The negative is they're such a big contributor to global growth. They are a major market for a lot of companies and for multinationals. The challenges that that's creating is a rethink of their positioning inside of China <clears throat> and how do they do business going forward? <clears throat> Excuse me. Another big issue is how does the yield curve get resolved? We have um, in the U.S. we have five percent uh, short rates and uh, or four percent short rates and uh, uh, lower uh, long rates. How does the market resolve that? Um, you can make the argument that uh, uh, the short rates will come down as we hit problems uh, and will come down as the economy, as some of the inflationary pressures ease, but that doesn't mean that the long rates stay down. They could start moving up for three reasons. One is uh, bond vigilantes are going to look to push them up. Supply and demand dynamics are another reason that could help push the long end up. Um, and those are two of the big ones. And then the fact is that the economy uh, needs to have higher rates uh, to deal with it because you're going to get the demand. You're going to have to push rates up. So I think that's one of the elements that you're going to see at play here. I think the other challenge is earnings have been pretty robust due to the inflationary pressures and the positive consumer, but we are seeing consumers starting to slow, wage pressures starting to eat into earnings, and cost pressures are also on the other side of that. And you're looking at this against an environment where uh, you're starting to see uh, companies having to rethink um, their markets and their distributions because of uh, changes in policy. And also that policy change from a government perspective is what's really driving it. And where they're uh, looking at their future is going to be very much dependent on uh, domestic policies by put forth by the fiscal policymakers. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then the big question is, how does the market behave as we go forward? We've had the mega cap names uh, driving in a way that is fairly unhealthy uh, versus the rest of the market. But I think they're actually particularly well positioned to continue to do well in this environment because of their strong balance sheets, their ability to uh, manage their balance sheets very effectively and still make big investments. Um, that puts them in a different spot. And they're also big cash flow generators with very manageable debt burdens, which puts them in a much better spot. I think this global terms of trade is one that we really need to stay focused on. We get a little complacent because supply chains have eased, but I think global terms of trade is much bigger than supply chains. I think it gets into the industrial policies and what you're seeing with the Inflation Reduction Act and other acts is the U.S. has done some things that have put them in a very strong competitive position, which go against a lot of the free market approach that we've always taken. And I've had some people scratching their heads, particularly Europeans, about how do they deal with that. So I think you're going to start to see some counter policies that go in place, which mean we're going to see a significant change in globalization. So where do you find an opportunity in this environment, I think is going to be the big question going forward. And that's why uh Mark and Bill are looking for everyone to complete the asset allocation survey that's out there because I think we all see the world from very different perspectives based on the region that you're coming from and the look that you, uh, the experience that you're going through at the, in the current term. I remain positive on the U.S., one, because I'm from the U.S. and it's what I see and what I know, but I also am positive on the U.S. for the dynamics that I'm seeing going on, going on around the rest of the world. 
I think the European industrial policy has got to go through some major changes, which will be complicated by the fact that it is a union uh, from a monetary perspective, but not from a fiscal perspective. And those policies that governments have to make will be determined by what's best for their own country, not best for the region. And I think that's going to make some of the policy uh uh, needed to be put in place very difficult for Europe. And I think it's going to continue to have show signs of slowing growth and it's going to weigh on them. I think for China, they're in a difficult spot in terms of dealing with their debt problems and how do they get out of this and still become uh, their view of maintaining global leadership and get, being on par, if not ahead of the US, I think is going to be uh, under some challenge for some time. And it does raise real questions, the economic challenges they're having right now for other nations that were looking to them to be the alternative to the U.S. Is that really an alternative that that country could put in place for a lot of reasons? Do they have the resources? Do they have the population? Do they have the political power to do that? Um, I don't think what China's doing can be done in a lot of other nations. So I don't know that it's as good a model as uh, a lot of people would like it to be. I also think this means that the U.S. Uh, dollar stays stronger for a longer period of time. I think the challenges that exist in uh, coming up with a rival uh, uh, currency were highlighted by the fact that uh, India is hosting the G20 meeting and President Xi has decided very publicly not to attend. Now, that could be because he's having problems with the U.S. and the West, it could be because he's having problems with India, could be because he's having challenges domestically and doesn't want to deal with the questions. But I think it shows you how difficult the global economy is right now from a geopolitical, economic and social perspective and will be a very complicated environment. For us at ARS, we still focus on uh, the U.S. as the uh, leading opportunity with pockets of opportunity in, in other areas. I think there are parts of Southeast Asia that'll do quite well. I think there are parts of Europe that are going to do quite well, too. Don't get me wrong. It's not all or nothing. But I think you're going to have to be very specific about the industries and the companies that can position or positioned, regardless of, of industrial policy by government uh, to do well. And I think there aren't that many of them there. I think you have to look at who has access to the energy that they need to do well in this environment. So I think the energy play is going to be with us for some time. I find that the uh, European policy right now is in flux on energy, where you're now starting to see more talk about bring, uh, changing the decommissioning of nuclear in, in Germany. I think that's a sign of the challenges that Europe's facing. Um, I think some of the industrial policies around diesel have put them in a difficult spot. So I think you're going to see some real changes coming that will be very different than the world we've been in uh, for some time. And therefore, you want to be very narrow in your focus uh, for where you're putting capital to work. So, Mark, threw a lot out there for people to uh, think about as we head into the final third okay. of the year. Happy to open up for questions and comments. I was just reflecting. You've you've always been <clears throat> good at presenting the, a lot of sides, but you're presenting a lot of sides on lots of, of parts of the world now. You've really evolved, Stephen, since uh, over these over these briefings. Three sixty one's gone Thank global. You. That's right. Uh, we got two questions out of, out of the bat. Uh, Adam and Andy, go for it. Adam. Stephen, great presentation. Thank you. Um, in this chaos, it, it just screams of opportunity here. Um, of course, a lot of risk 
and mitigating that risk is a challenge. In can you elaborate more on the opportunities? Yeah, I think you want to. I think one of the challenges is you want to avoid the hype, right? And AI right now, I think, is in a the early stages of a hype cycle. Um, that you really want to be careful how you move into some of these areas. But from that, you're starting to see other opportunities come up, like the. Uh, uh, well, we, we've. We've always loved both sides of the energy play, um, but I think you really want to think about maybe the refining spaces crack spreads have widened out recently. Um, that's more of a trade rather than investment because they don't stay open for as long as you'd like. But um, I think that's one area. I think you want to look at um, what comes out of some of these um, policies. If, if Is nuclear coming back to Europe, for example? That's a fascinating topic that... Um, has big implications for it. Um, so I think that the energy space is one that there's still opportunities. You just want to be careful how you play that. Um, we think the tech area is still a, um, an important area to play because the productivity needs uh, for the world are going to be great and that, and you still want to be there. I think the large, I think the fangs will continue to do well in this environment because <clears throat> AI feeds right into what they're what they're good at, which is handling big data and moving big data around and providing the uh, uh, ways to use it better. So I think the Microsofts and the Googles are particularly well-positioned. Amazon are particularly well-positioned to benefit there. I think the chip makers are still going to be uh, a big part of it. And I think the U.S. industrial base is a great opportunity to continue to play. Um, companies like Eaton and the, the power play is um, the electrification plays inside the industrial complex are all going to be very strong opportunities. I think companies in Europe, and I'm not talking from a valuation perspective, but from a capability, the the guys who are going to help with the grid talk, the grid upgrades, all that, those are real big areas, but you have to be very focused on who has the, one, the financials to do it, and who has the access to the talent, because there's a talent problem around the world. And until we solve that, that's really going to be defined who, who wins and who loses. I think you want to avoid financials, certainly in the U.S., and I think in some of the other areas, too, right now, that um, some of the uh, issues in the U.S. where um, the policies push their uh, uh, balance sheets out, they, they went a little too long and have some mismatches, I think, are still at play here with higher rates staying there for longer. So I think you want to avoid those plays as well. Um, so those are the main ones for us, I think, in the, in the industrial commodities. China has made some interesting, and, and here's the complexity of China again, um, what they're doing in their brief announcements this week of stimulating, give you pockets of opportunity to go after inside China. They're telling you they're going to support certain areas a little bit more. And I think when they do that, um, it's going to free up some things and the industrial commodities should see some pickup from that as well. So those would be the areas that I think we're primarily focused on. Thank you, Stephen. You're welcome. Andrew. Andy. Yep. Um, uh, you partly answered my question on Adams at the end, but if you could just elaborate a little bit. Um, uh, first of all, before that, it, it's uh, if, if people were sort of listening, it was a great summary of the yield curve and rates and kind of where we are to where we're going. And, and I think you could even simplify it to what you said to say that, well, the 10 year could literally stay where it is and the short end could come down as inflation pressures come down and then you have a normal shape yield curve. 
um, as one possibility. But anyway, that wasn't the question. The question was uh, going back to your, you know, the glo global economic growth, India, China, all that kind of stuff. But literally an ARS perspective, because you guys do public equities and everybody here, me, we all do different things. So so that's a, a good way to look at at uh, a geo investment, whether it is. So I, you partly answer the question through Adam, but separate out the growth prospects, India, China, et cetera. Uh, you mentioned China having prioritized areas and they always tell you what they are, yep. uh, but some, but, 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 but half the Chinese economy is, is government owned businesses and half is not. So from a investment perspective, in other words, putting, putting what we just heard to work, um, how and where would you actually invest and how, where would you not because of reasons other than growth or et cetera? So our, our portfolio would tip a typical for our flagship portfolio, which is our, our growth uh, strategy would have uh, probably 35% uh, in tech split between the uh, FANGs uh, and NVIDIA um with uh uh chips as the remainder of it we would be double the market in industrials uh split between those providing the um uh reindustrialization of the US and the defense companies <clears throat> we would probably be about uh 10 to 14% in energy both through uh, e &P companies, uh, as well as um, uh, uh, Array, uh, companies like Array and Flextronics, which we've been moving out of, but for our, our alternative energy um, capabilities. Uh, and then we would have some industrial names and communication names for the others. And I think inside the communication sector, there's an interesting dynamic at play with uh, with Charter and Disney right now, which is kind of a reflection of what's going on in the uh, in that world, which is is content more important than uh, than the ability to uh, uh, bring uh, connect connectivity into the home. And I think Charter is saying right now that they're uh, they're less concerned about whether they get uh, ESPN than they are about. Uh, controlling their costs going forward. I think there's some really interesting cost dynamics going on in different areas that um, you have to be careful of too. So where we're avoiding is financials, although we do own the, uh, and when I say financials in that respect, I mean banks, we do own BlackRock, Blackstone, and uh, uh, a company called uh, AJ Gallagher, which is a really smart roll-up of uh, uh, insurance brokerage operations in the US. So. I think that, and then in the materials sector, we're significantly overweight, uh, really around uh, copper, rare earths, and steel. So those would be the big. Uh, and Stephen, areas. how much in that list is international? I know you're U.S. Uh, focused. We do it all through U.S. We get plenty of, we're getting all the, the global exposure we need uh, through that. We do it all, all through U.S. companies. Fair enough. Stephen, as far as opportunities, uh, and based on the energy focused discussion we have today, if anybody wants to check out a company called EarthGrid, you know, a lot of technologies, they have plasma tunneling technologies to take the overhead electrical system, which is predominant 
the United States for transmission distribution and put it on the ground. If you look at that in combination with all the global climate challenges, um, you know, there's just a need for more of the utility to be underground and not subject to the environmental uh, challenges, hurricane storms, et cetera. If you look at New York's electrical grid, uh, you know, it's 99.9% uh, reliable because of, of, you know, New York City, it's on the ground. So there's a lot of, in the energy area that we're working on, we're working with that company and many others, they signed some big contracts and others coming up. Separately, uh, if anybody needs, it's still a private company, but they got some big contracts. If anybody's interested, I'm happy to uh, help them. This is a friend, not a client, just a friend that's the CEO. Uh, separately on China, you know, with the work I do with DARPA, there's no surprise that the downturn for the Biden administration. Recently, U.S. investments in China for further prohibiting the, the investments in the deep tech. And you mm -hmm. see a lot of clients continue to move out of China. So I don't see anything stopping that trend. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting that that what that means for capital flows, I think, is um I think the hope for China is that what they lose from the West, they're picking up from the other bricks. But um, there's usually a gap between those, uh, the timing of that. So it sounds better in the planning stage than it often plays out in practice. Our friend Rob hey, has a question. Hey, thanks, Mark. Steve, for you, but Peter, you know, given his role as, as a lawyer, might have input. I saw last week that, um, that uh, the SEC has yet another Elon Musk with respect to either a, a project that was not disclosed or the like. Um, is that just sort of, in your view, the way he likes to manage things, or are there um, are there do you have some other thoughts as to uh, the culture there as far as the you know these SEC type matters? I, I don't. He's a uh, only he's he is who he is. So uh, um, <laughs> I don't know. <clears throat> I don't really have a. Have a view on it. We don't own Tesla for clients, so I'm not yeah, with the, the SEC myself, but I know they're having some challenges on the crypto side and trying to make that industry more transparent. There's some recent articles in general on that, but yeah, nothing for me on that. Yeah, and just just a thought there, Mark, is that I think um, you know Larry Ellison from Oracle, you know, had a long story there, but he was traditionally that sort of Silicon Valley, I'm not gonna say bad boy, but rebel. So there's you know, a culture there that, um, that um, you know, hey, at the end of the day, if they're, if they're, if they're executing on plan and, and creating value, that's great. But it's, um, it's just, it's an interesting observation of these, uh, of these types of, um, uh, of this type of complexity. Does anyone want to talk about, we haven't really hit in this forum, the SEC uh, view on, additional say over oversight and responsibility for for venture and private equity funds uh do you want the guy that went through a two-year sec audit running one <laughs> um well if he has a if he or she has a point of view on these on these new i don't know uh, Stephen, is it a is it a ruling um how did it come down Two, it was two weeks ago, I think. Yeah, I think they put in new rules, and I think everyone's. I don't know if they're out for question or if they're if they're out for comment or if they've actually been put through. Um, but Mark, I could somebody from my SEC or VC or private equity group got the next call. Yeah, maybe, 
maybe next yeah. next by next Tuesday, just to get a. Yeah. Mark, it's 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 about transparency um, in private uh, fund groups. Um, the the hedge funds, for instance, went through and have to now file and disclose even their shorts and things like that. Um, now they're moving on to venture funds and and now actually, ironically, uh, private lending has gotten so large because lending was in the public space when it was in the even the high yield markets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now it's become uh, opaque. So I think more of it is about transparency than it is about regulation in terms of changing the industry. I don't know uh, if there's somebody else, you know, who like me lived in a big bank and had to worry about that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I follow it and uh, it did pass. And already the NBCA and several other associations are suing the SEC to avoid it. They're fighting uh, and it's principally around sidecar fee transparency. Um, some of the teeth of liability for the GPs was taken out because they felt it was covered by a, an, an existing law or policy, if you will, about fiduciary responsibility. So it's not earth shattering. It's good. It's more transparency, which is not a bad thing. Um, and already last week, the uh, major trade organizations now filed a lawsuit to avoid it, which speaks yeah, to... No Go ahead, I'm Steve. sorry, Joe. I was just going to say that their lawsuit was based on the fact that you're dealing with sophisticated investors who don't need the extra protection from the SEC, which I don't think will hold water over any period of time uh, when there's so much money being thrown at it. And the implications for uh, the workers of the companies that are involved is going to be a bigger play. So I think that's uh, I think it's going to be really interesting to see if they can get it across the finish line on sophistication. Well, they also, I looked at the filing and um, they're claiming it's going to lessen available capital and put an unwanted burden on an industry that's already flush with cash, for Christ's sakes. I mean, it's the, the, their excuses are, they should be embarrassed, in my opinion. But this is well, just the classic other, lobbying. And the other argument, uh, Joe, is that it's going to um, uh, benefit the big ones, big companies, and prohibit uh, or certainly significantly reduce the amount of new companies coming in to the space. Hey, hey, hey Joe, Joe, but just to the defense of either the VC or the uh, company sponsor, and you got a lot of experience with the VC world, um, I, I guess the point of transparency is well taken, but at the same time, some of these folks don't want to disclose until there's material, you know, operational uh uh, proof, or they want to sort of, you know, they don't want to necessarily give unfair um, advantage to the market until it's ready, would you say? Well, the, this transparency isn't on the individual companies inside the portfolio. This is on the fund activity. So this is a transparency at the fund level. And they there is not, to me, a legitimate excuse for them not wanting to be transparent. I mean, like Joe, weren't they looking for quarterly updates, though? There was a different um, movement that I haven't seen it come out of committee at the SEC about require transparency requirements at, at, at all Reg D offerings, which obviously would include individual company uh, security offerings. I haven't seen that. This was around, and again, it was principally around fee disclosures and side, side letters and all those different things. 
all, there, there's several layers in it. There's a guy named Chris Harvey, who's a securities attorney, and he's done a really good job of write-ups on this topic and keeping people very current. So you can find him on LinkedIn. He's got a lot of posts out there, really dissecting. I think he does a very a, a quality, even-handed job. Uh, Joe, there is a piece that Stephen's talking about that's in between Rob's concern and and what you said. You're absolutely right about the GP part, but in terms of the the reporting, um, what Rob said is true about material events. The problem is that's all up to the GP. There's no regulation or rules as to that type of reporting, and now they want to actually make a rule about that reporting. But that doesn't mean you're going to get inside information from individual companies that's right. non-public information. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, the if, if you know the industry well enough, and, they, and, and in their filings, of course, they throw in everything oh. in there about it's going to disadvantage small. Well, which which is actually not true. Chris Harvey did her did a thing and says, no, those are those are not true. It applies to the big guys and they don't have any budget constraints to do that. And they there was uh, somebody that, that they came up with a number that this is going to add an additional four billion dollars in compliance costs, which is, I think, patently horseshit. Um, I mean, that's just well, horseshit. Well, maybe, you know, I, I threw out the question and Pete, you could bring some people. We could talk about it next next week. I unfortunately or fortunately have to leave. Um, I'll leave it to, we can carry on the discussion. You guys are pretty good at that. Um, so carry on. Good to see everybody. Take care, Mark. Take care, Mark. <clears throat> hey, um, hey, Steve, just one other thought on this. I also noticed that there's a little bit of pressure on some of these um AI companies, these AI um, investors, you know, looking for <laughs> looking for a return or some commercial, uh, commercial uh, um, you know, status here. Uh, you're shaking your head positively. What are your thoughts? I think we're. I think it's a typical hype cycle that you come out of the blocks, everyone gets all excited, and then you hit the air pocket where you have to have a product that has real value and creates revenues. Um, and I think we're getting faster onto uh, because the environment we're in. I think one of the big changes, and if you th think about the changing structure of the market, you don't have as much time to be without revenues as you as you did at zero interest rates, and you're going to have to get your revenues up faster in these startups, or you're not going to be seeing the money coming. And I think that's I think that is one of the big changes that's going on is that. Um, if the revenues aren't coming up quickly, you're going to see the markets react very differently to that than they have before. I think that's one of the changes that I'm, I think is coming. And I think that gets to really a just the difference of a zero interest rate environment, a 5% interest rate environment of how we're thinking about things. And Stephen, you you mentioned NVIDIA and the chip industry. Uh, Arm Holdings is, is going to go public, massive IPO and... I hate the headline. It says SoftBank's Arm Holdings. Arm Holdings has been around way longer than SoftBank ever existed. Um, but anyway, there's, there's. I don't know how far down the list you've looked. For instance, a company that this personally makes me cry because uh, one of my chip companies uh, got absorbed. Uh, timing's everything uh, into a company called Cadence Design. If you haven't looked at them, so if you're looking at Nvidia, then you look at Arm Holdings. Uh, 
Those are uh, designed, programmable. It's all an ecosystem around, you know, what makes all this stuff work. And there's 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 actually a, a fair number of companies in that ecosystem, not not hundreds, but but dozens that that probably are worth a, a hard look. Uh, Cadence has done very well for us. I did hear that the bulk of the shares being offered are SoftBank shares, though. Uh, no well. <laughs> that's, so, liquid, that's liquidity when you need it <laughs> so i think that is part of it um i think somebody else had their hand up a minute ago came down okay anyone else uh, adam is your hand up you're on mute you're still on mute you're on mute adam yep thank you Thank you. My question is back to, um, in your presentation, you mentioned the engagement rules of trade. Mm -hmm. uh, are you talking about the, can you elaborate on that? And, and uh, changing, what, changing terms of trade is the, is the term I use. And it really goes back to, <clears throat> well, it goes back a long ways, but really the recent times is Trump uh, trade wars with China and the trade restrictions that he's put on. So you now have trade restrictions being put on much more aggressively by countries that were previously promoting globalization like the U.S. Um, that's one element. And then you have the industrial policies that are going on that are really protectionist policies being put in place for industries that are really redirecting capital and the and the way trade actually works. And one of the one of the concerns I have is uh, if we do see more global fragmentation along the lines of the West versus the, the East or the BRICS versus the G7, what you're going to see is basically you're setting up redundant capabilities. And then do you have, do you lose the efficiencies that globalization brought because you're really running two of everything, one for the autocrats and one for the Democrats. So I think that's part of the challenge. So how do you, how do you creating inefficiencies in the system um, through this? And therefore, it makes it more challenging for who who is on the right side of the winning and losing of that. I think that's really what we're talking about. Then you add to it, you look at what it's done to European industrial policy right now, uh, when you know European countries can benefit greatly from incentives from the U.S. government to set up a plant in the U.S. where they have greater access to energy and, uh, in some cases, better access to talent. So I think that's that's those policies are really changing the terms of trade. Uh, the the pandemic changed the terms of trade too because it made it uh, not just in time but safe and secure supply chains that what you need. So I think all those things that we've experienced the last couple of years have really redefined how the global economy works. And that's what the central banks woke up and said: Wait a second, the world we were in eight years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago is very different than what we're in today. And are we set for that? And I think in a lot of cases, they're really not. They're in the worst position they've been in to deal with it. They've in in the last 15 years. It's I don't think they've been in a worse spot to deal with the problems. Uh, in, 